Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love, starting with San Francisco. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. We are celebrating 25 episodes of Menu Stories. This is episode 25, the second of a special two-part series featuring sister restaurants 1300 on Fillmore and Black Bark Barbecue. If you haven't already, listen to episode 24, where we introduce the history of the Fillmore Jazz District and meet chef Jake Whitlock of 1300 on Fillmore, the older of the two restaurants. In this episode, we meet executive chef David Lawrence, who, together with his wife, Manetta White, owns 1300 on Fillmore, a grand jazz-infused restaurant that sits on Fillmore Street next to the large space which Yoshi's used to occupy. When regulars to 1300 on Fillmore started ordering ribs off the menu, Lawrence started thinking about a casual compliment to 1300. His own story, though, perfectly captures the essence of the stories we've heard on this podcast so far. A classic mix of hard work, perseverance, a connection to being part of an immigrant family, and a deep loyalty to both customers and his staff. Let's have a listen. London, you grew up there? Yeah. Where, where in London did you grow up? I grew up in around Wembley, uh, where the big soccer stadium is. My parents were immigrants to England. And so we lived in a council house, which over here you called projects. Mm-hmm. I went to school. My school meals were paid for. You know, we got assisted for uniform and stuff like that. And um, you know, so I, I never knew I was poor. <laughs> you know, I went to school happily. You know, ignorant. Yeah. <laughs> Just played with everybody. It's not until you get into the working force that you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, there's another life out here. You know. Yeah. And it was when I, I really before I even got into work, and I I, I got a job as a I remember my dad buying me shoes. Shoes were always an issue for me. I always wore through my shoes playing football on the way to school and stuff like that. I had holes in them. And, you know, I'd be like, Dad, I got a hole in my shoe. I'm like, son, you know, I get paid on Friday. It's Tuesday. You have to wait till Friday. So, you know, I'd take a newspaper, put it in there, cover up the hole and stuff, go to school like that. And, you know, it was no big deal. And then when it became a big deal for me is when my dad bought me three pairs of platform shoes. And, uh, you know, when platform shoes were going out, look at me, I'm 6'4", do I need platform shoes, you know? <laughs> I'll never forget, there were three of them. There was a green pair, a black pair, and a gray pair with these piping across it. And my dad gave me that, and I'm like, Dad, I can't wear those shoes. He goes, son, they were on sale. That's all I can afford. I went, okay, Dad. <laughs> and I went and got myself a job the next day. And I worked in this coffee shop up the road, and I earned a pound 50 in there. And then the summer came, and I asked him if I could work the summer. And I earned a pound every day. So I earned six pounds 50 a week. By the end of that summer, I had enough money to buy my own shoes, my own clothes. I went up to my dad. I'm like, Dad, Dad, don't buy me anything more. I'm okay, I'm okay. <laughs> he laughed. <laughs> he thought it was so funny, you know. <laughs> like he had taught me a lesson in life, you know. If you want something, son, go and buy something yourself. For me, it was like I wanted to keep my street credibility. <laughs> That's all I was thinking about. It was no life lesson to me. <laughs> I wanted some moccasin shoes. I didn't want any platforms again, you know, because wearing platforms at school at that time, I was just, it was a mockery, you know. So um, that, that's what we did. And so, but I tell you, just being able to buy my first pair of shoes, I was happy, you know. I was content. I was the richest guy in the world because I was able to do that. Yeah. What, uh, what did your parents what did your parents do for a living? Um, my dad was um, like I said I was raised by my father um, uh, my dad was a chef uh, he got into it later in life he was he worked for a company called Hoover 
which was the um, vacuum company. Yeah. He was an engineer with them. And then he got out of that through uh, an injury. And then he um, got into cooking in steakhouses. Um, I, I can't remember the transition, but I just remember that he did that. And um, he got pretty well known in, in his area for cooking steaks. My dad was larger than life. Um, he was a big guy, that, you know, he's six foot and a uh, good looking guy. And uh, so he worked in these predominantly uh, Caucasian neighborhoods. So he stood out and everyone would come in, hey, Frank, how you doing? And, you know, and uh, all the wives loved him and all the men loved him, you know. <laughs> so um, they all sought, after, sought him out because they liked his conversation and they liked the way he cooked. And so he, he made a name for himself in Northwest London working in these um, high-end steakhouses. Well, I'd say high-end. They were high-end for us. They were Bernie Inns. <laughs> and uh, looking back, it makes you smile. It was the typical place that businessmen would go and eat at during the week. Mm -hmm. And it was the typical place that you would go to for a celebration at the weekend. Mm -hmm. And uh, I still remember the menu to this day. It was prawn cocktail to start off with, or a salad. <laughs> And the entree was going to be a fish dish. It would be a steak. And the steak would normally come with baked potatoes, fries, or salad. <laughs> and then uh, dessert was always apple a la mode or a black forest gatto. And so when I went in there, I was like, ooh, <laughs> this is so nice. <laughs> it was uh, the Bernie Inns, uh, Quality Inns, uh, these kind of uh, restaurants. The uh, fine dining scene hadn't developed yet, mm -hmm. although it was starting. It really? was starting to, to come along. What are your kind of first memories of the fine dining scene in London? Um, you know, I got into cooking. I left school at 16, and um, I went and worked at a steakhouse. And then I moved from there. Uh, one of my dad's cousins, who I was, I called uncle, was an uncle of mine, Uncle Duncan. He was in the restaurant business, and he had a place in, uh, he was running in Piccadilly. He was a chef there, so I left the steakhouse and I went there, and that was like a little bit more quality. And it, it, the place actually was called Quality Inns in in Piccadilly. Lo no longer exists. Um, I think the space actually is run by Mark, one of Marco Pierre White's restaurants, who I worked with in wow. London at the Gavroche. Full circle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, um, I remember working in that place, and it was just a little bit better quality. The food was a little bit better. The uh, menu um, was a little bit more expensive, and the desserts was a little bit more as well. <laughs> as I tasted more my variety. way, yeah, <laughs> as I tasted my way through them, there was a lot more variety. <laughs> so that was interesting to see that, and that's where I saw it getting a little bit better. So you were working at the at the restaurant then, where your father was the chef. I initially, when I left school, um, I went to work at the restaurant where my dad was the chef. Um, but he, as I went there, he was leaving, so he got me the job. Oh, wow. And I went and worked there, and um, but it lasted like a month or two, yep. because um, the amount of money that I thought I should have got didn't coincide with what they felt I should earn, and so they said after a month if you can do this we can uh, give you more, and after a month I did it and they didn't give me more, so <laughs> I walked out. <laughs> Good for you. It was the first time and last time I ever walked out with an another job, because <laughs> I tried to get another job and I just didn't have the qualifications to get into anywhere. And I remember going to um, a company that um, placed people. They said, well, what do you know? I said, what do you mean, what do you know? Well, you know, do you know this sauce? Do you know that sauce? And basically, we're looking at his copy of book and like repeating things to me. I'm like, no, I don't know that. So, 
well, there's nothing we can do for you. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and then reality hit. Yeah. I had to learn my craft. Yeah. And so I was very lucky. My uncle um, allowed me to come and work for him. And I started honing my craft. Mm-hmm. And um, while I was there honing my craft, um, I met this other guy who said, David, are you going to school? He goes, school? <laughs> he goes, yeah, are you going to culinary school? And I said, no. He said, well, you need to go to culinary school. And at that point, I said, okay, if that's what I need to do, I will do that. And I went on to um, Westminster College. And I went there and learned and, um, you know, uh, culinary from a, a book standpoint. And uh, did my 706, 1 and 2, which is the entry level to culinary schools in, in England. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have a system over there where you don't pay for school. Uh, unlike here, yeah. uh, but you pay for it for the rest of your life. You pay for it in taxes, you know. Right. So it's a lot easier, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, a little bit of your taxes goes towards these these um, schools, and so I got into there, and it was one of the best meals I ever made. And while I was at the school, I met this this German chef, John, uh, sorry Frank, and um, who was who introduced me to the Rue brothers and the Gavroche and how good they were. And you know, if you wanted to learn, you need to be in this place, and they were the best, and all that. And I was like, really? And so I was intrigued. And um, I was working at another place, and decided it wasn't the quality wasn't good enough for me. I'd learned as much as I possibly could. I needed to make a move, and I I um, pulled up. I, I started writing letters to the Gavroche, and I r- was up all night writing letters and you know, rewriting the letter, writing the letter, and. Knowing me, I've always felt that if I present myself, I am going to make a better impression than if I wrote a letter about myself. So <coughs> I went down there in the morning, and I got in there into human resources office. And as I walk in there, um, the human resource woman lady came out and spoke to me. And right next to her was Albert Rue, who is the god in England. He's opened all the restaurants. Um, he opened Le Gavroche, Le Gamin, Le Popo, um, Butcher Le Martin, all these are his. Any top chef in England has gone through his, one of his uh, restaurants, um, Marco Pierre White, who I worked with, mm-hmm. um, Gordon Ramsay, you know, from Hell's Kitchen. All these people have all gone through the restaurant, Rue restaurants. It was the only three-star Michelin restaurant group in England at this time, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So it was the creme de la creme. Anyway, so I walk in there, and I'm starting to think on my feet. I want this job. I really do, and I want to be here. So the lady came and talked to me, and I said, Hi, uh, I'm David Lawrence, and I've been writing you for the last six months, and I've been sending you my letters, and you haven't replied to one. (laughs) Which is all a complete lie. lie. (laughs) A complete lie. But I wanted a job, and I will not be deterred. (coughs) Anyway, so she goes, really? I always reply. Now I'm putting her on the spot because <laughs> she's not doing her job and Albert's standing right next to her. And I didn't realize that was Albert. And if I had realized that was Albert, I would never have told a lie. I would have been a lot more humble and you know, a lot more demure. Anyway, so um, she goes, I always reply, always. I said, I don't know what happened, but I haven't had a reply, and I want to work for you. <laughs> you know, and I was determined that Albert's not saying a word. He's just listening. He's just listening to what's going on. Anyway, so she goes, well, 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 uh, well 
we don't normally take apprentices until September. Uh, and no, basically she said, what do you do? I said, I, I'm going to school and uh, um, I will, I've been going to school for a year now. And she said, well, you're an apprentice. I go, yes. She said, we don't take them until September. I go, well, it was January at this time. And I said, well, I'll wait till September. Just keep a place for me. But I want to work for you guys. I don't want to work for anybody else. I want to work for you. And uh, she goes, oh, oh, okay. And then Albert beckoned her, and they walked off. She came back to me and said, um, give me your letter and with your address and information, and we'll be in touch with you. I went, okay. And February 16th, I got a letter from them. February 16th is a very significant day for me. It's my birthday. I got this letter saying, you can start the 1st of March. And that's how I got in with the Rue brothers. Wow. And I got a letter from them. And that's just because I was determined and I lied. <laughs> so two lessons, kids. Yeah. <laughs> Be determined and, and lie. lie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> lie, 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 lie. <laughs> Never know. Really. It'll get you everywhere. Thank <laughs> <laughs> gosh. What brought you to America then from, from London? Well, so... Uh, like I said, I, I was very lucky I got in with the Rue Brothers and lied my way in there. Um, but it, it's the best restaurant group in the country. So anybody from Europe, the French, Germans, Italians, who want to cook fine dining and learn English at the same time, would come to the garage. So you met a lot of people coming through who worked there for, and I worked with them for five years. So in five years, I saw a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I worked at Le Gamin, Le Pauvre, Le Gavroche, Le Bouche, La Matin, all these places where you met wow. people. When you say people, what do you mean? You sound like, it sounds like there's something that... You meet a lot of chefs, a lot of fellow um, chefs who are, uh, are going to be pretty big in their own countries. They're going to own restaurants. They're going to, you know, they're going to be the shakers and movers in, in, the, in my culinary field because the, the Gavroche is like going to Harvard. You know, when you get in there, you no one ever turns around and doesn't offer you a job, <laughs> you know, basically. I tell you, I, I don't think I've had to look for a job since I left the Gavroche. Mm -hmm. People have called me. And um, so I was, um, I was at the Gavroche. I left the Gavroche and went to work at Butch La Martin um, because after that, because um, I just needed to calm down a little bit. The Gavroche is six o'clock in the morning till one o'clock at night. So it's, 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 it's a long day. And so I went to work at Butch Le Martin just to work. Um, we worked um, Tuesday to Saturday. We had Monday, Tuesday, Monday, uh, Sunday, Mondays off. And so I went and worked there. And then Albert moved me to a place called Gavers, which was the old Gavroche, uh, the Gavroche that he opened in the 60s. And he eventually moved the Gavroche to Upper Brook Street near Park Lane. And on, it was actually on Park Street, Park Street and Park, Upper Brook Street. And so um, when I left the Gavroche, I had gone back and taken a picture of all the guys I worked with. And there was one guy in the middle of this picture making this funny face. As he makes the funny face, I'm like, you know, who is that guy? He must be the new guy. And I took the draw this picture and put it in a drawer for two years. I had gone, so at Gavers, which was a restaurant that um, was the old Gavroche, I was, Albert put me there as a sous chef. And um, at this place, um, I met this lady over there. And um, 
She was a Nicaraguan woman, and her name was Terry. And um, she worked there five weeks, five weeks only, and we were, you know, very friendly, but that was it. She was gone. Never thought I would ever see this woman in my life again. And um, I moved on. I'm, I'm working at the, with the Rue Brothers. I actually um, was recruited at a place called the Interlude de Fabio, which was an old Gavroche re uh, Rue restaurant, restaurant, and it was right next to the Royal Opera House, and I went there. And um, as I go there, we're closing within the first month of me being there. And they basically paid for me to go on vacation and come back. So I had British friends who were living in America, and they said, you should come over here. So I had this opportunity to come over. And I, to me, it was like, let's go to America, get it out of the way, and then come back. You know, And like I've said, I've been to America. It was, yep. That was all I thought about America. Was just to, it was one of those bucket list things to just take up and, and move on and continue my traveling around Europe. And the place I wanted to get to was Australia. I was supposed to go there and, and live there. And Albert talked to me out of it a couple of times because he had plans for me. Anyway, so um, I come here and with my British friends, and they were like living in very nicely. <laughs> they had a five-bedroom house, they had a swimming pool. I'm like, you got all this? And like, yeah, it's not bad, is it? I'm like, this is really nice. And I, I knew how they grew up in England. They grew up very similar to me. I thought, this is really nice. And, you know, the weather was great, and they lived on the peninsula. It was always sunny. And anyway, so we were having a drink at the Merritt Hotel after me being about here about three, four days. And this cocktail waitress is staring at me. And my girlfriend's like, why is she staring at you? I said, I think I know her. It's like, no way. And she comes over, and she says, hello, David. And I go, Terry? And I don't remember her name because she had a name tag. Yeah. But Terry was the lady I worked with in, at, the, um, at Gavis, the old Gavroche. Mm -hmm. And she said, what are you doing here? I said, I'm on vacation. I said, what do you do here? She said, I live here. I'm like, oh my god. And I hadn't seen her in two years. You know, yeah. We worked together for five weeks. She said, Kurt's opening a restaurant. I said, Kirk who? Kirk Grayson, my boyfriend. You know him? I said, no, I don't. <laughs> Kirk was the guy in the picture. And the one I was like, who the hell is that? Yeah. And I had this picture for two years. And within five minutes, he came and offered me a job. And he comes and he walks in the door, and I recognize him. I'm like, I know you. <laughs> and he looks at me like, you do? And he's like, I'll show you one day. And he offered me a job on the spot. And uh, basically, that's how I came here. What, so what city was this in? This was in San Mateo. Oh, wow, OK. This was in San Mateo, and uh, the restaurant was called 231 Ellsworth which is a very famous restaurant down there, and it was open for about 25 years. Wow. And he opened at the end of 86, and I came in the beginning of 88, so I was there probably about a year and something after it opened. Yeah. And that's the restaurant that brought me to America, it was 231 Ellsworth. So you just decided to stay. Well, I had to go back to England, because I was in a good job over there. And um, I told him, I promised him that I'd come back, and I went back, and I told, and after being there, I did a year. And so to me, it was important to do a year. And so I said, I was leaving, and I'm coming to America. And they like, no, you can't go. We need you. We need you. And I'm like, yeah, I, I'm leaving. I'm going to America. I've got a job over there. They need me over there. And they said, well, whatever you want, you can have. But we need you to be here. I'm like, really? They go, yeah, whatever. I went. Uh, I need a company car and I need $30,000 more. 
And I'm laughing because, like, no one did that. And then I was walking away, and they said, yeah, you can have it. I'm like, what? <laughs> I was annoyed for two reasons. One, I didn't want it. Two, I should have asked for more. <laughs> anyway, they gave me that, and I talked to Kirk, and Kirk said, you know, you need to get out here. I need you. I said, yeah, but they need me. I need to be here a little bit longer. This is Rebecca Goberstein, and you're listening to Menu Stories, a podcast where we get to know the stories about the people and restaurants behind the food we love. We'll be right back with Executive Chef David Lawrence of Black Bark Barbecue and 1300 on Fillmore. Anyway, so um, I stayed a little bit longer, and I started um, I, um, I stayed there in total about a year and a little bit. And I told them I was leaving, I'm going to America. And they were like, no, David, we need you, we need you. And I said, nope, we're not playing that game again. Yeah. And um, I decided I, I, I needed to get out and come over here. And I came here on um, January the 8th, 1988. What do you think was pushing you to get out? Well, I think the fact that I just bumped into Terry like that, you know, I just think that was like someone told me, you know, this is where you need it to be. I think in life you have you have forks in the road, and you can go left, it'll be good. You can go right, it'll be good. But there comes a point you have to make a decision, and it, the the pull uh, of 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 the Bay Area was too great, and so um, it just got into me that that's where I wanted to go. Once I get into my head that I want something, yeah. I'm going to work towards getting it, right. and I get very stubborn like that until I achieve it. So what brought you from uh, then? So you came out to San Mateo then and um, started working there. And yes. there for some time. Yeah, I worked there for about four years. Okay. And two years with Kirk Raisin, and then he left, and then I stayed on because I was waiting for my green card, and uh, I stayed there. And then I moved on from there and went to the Hilton. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have um, some hotel experience. And Why so. I just felt that it made it made me, it rounded me out. I had always done fine dining and restaurants, but I had never done anything with any numbers. So I thought that it would be for my for my resume, it would be good to have at least a hotel experience on there, so that I was more rounded as a chef and as a cook, uh, so that down the road, if I needed to go in that direction, I had options. Mm-hmm. And so my uh, my plans were always like five year plans, you know, where am I going to be in five years, where am I going to be in ten years, mm-hmm. and so I always wanted to open a restaurant, but if it didn't happen for me, then I had the options to move into hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, hotels were bigger, they, um, you could, they were career makers, you know, you could go into a hotel and make a good career for yourself, and um, earn a good living in hotels. Obviously, they have rooms, so they have more money, mm-hmm. and they have banquets as well, so they can pay you more. So. Um, by this time, I had a family, so I had to think about that as well. So um, I just wanted to have that option. So it was supposed to be one year. I was having so much fun. It ended up being four years. <laughs> <laughs> Which Hilton was this? The, uh, downtown San Francisco. Hilton. Oh yeah, so I can uh, imagine that being it was. Fun. And this is the early 90s, 92 and, yeah. uh, uh, period. And what the Hilton did for me, I didn't learn to cook anything there, but <laughs> it was a hotel. I taught them how to cook. Yeah. <laughs> but what I learned there was to be organized. Mm-hmm. I learned that um, you know, an organization like that had a lot of resources 
and I learned how to tap into resources to get what I wanted. And so, which was um, a wonderful thing to learn at that time. The PR department was there on, on premise. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have to go and find a PR company to do stuff. I went in there, talked to Debbie Larkin, you know, uh, security was there. I needed to go to an event. I called security, they would have a truck ready for me and I would have uh, my apprentices around and my cooks and we organized it, cater wrapped it and put it on the truck and they would drive me to an event. So it was, it was very, it was luxury. <laughs> Whereas before everything I had to do myself, truck it, find a truck and bring it there and the Hilton did all that for you. So yeah. it was a lot of fun. And then I, I learned how to cook with big numbers. Mm -hmm. um, although I did do, I was in charge of banquets but I worked with the banquet guys, and um, I learned to um, to do numbers there at the hotel. Also, it was a union place, mm -hmm. so I learned how to get on with people. Mm -hmm. uh, very important, and to, you know, not everybody is on board with what you want to do, but you have to try and get them all on board, and get them to a point where they saw the big picture and they all wanted to contribute. You know, and I learned to understand that not everybody's going to give a hundred percent. And, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, they have stuff going on in their lives and they don't want to be there or whatever. And there are people there who want to give more than 100%. But you had to get them all together and on the, on the boat going the same way. So you had to accept that and, and appreciate what people could give. And we did that. I learned how to document as well. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, yeah. a good lesson to You learn. learned how to document and yeah. make sure that you had all your or your I's dotted, <laughs> your yeah. T's crossed, right. because it's a union place. We had local too, and um, I was very lucky in the four years there, I never had a grievance. Right. <laughs> but I, I, I wrote people up. Yeah. And I always said, I never wrote, I, I don't write people up, they write themselves up. And yep, so, exactly. <laughs> and uh, you know, someone did something wrong, I was like, did you do that? And yeah. they said, uh, yes. Okay, <laughs> so yeah. let's write down what you did. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it was right. their words, and you know, so yeah. so I never got into grievances like that. You yeah. know, so it was a, it was a big learning curve at the hotel, from fine dining to hotel, which was really good for me because I eventually went to a, um, a restaurant um, called the um, Carnegie Room, mm -hmm. top of the Bank of America building, mm -hmm. and that was a cross between a restaurant and a hotel, even though it wasn't a hotel, people thought it was. But uh, we would cook in the, in the, fr in the, in the dining room. We'd, we could cook in there for up to 400 people. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but they also had private dining rooms. So we had banquets going on all over the place. Yeah. So it was a restaurant and a banquet place at the same time. And so that was um, a combination of restaurant and hotel, uh, which was uh, I had built up towards. I didn't realize I was building towards that. Mm -hmm. But um, with all my knowledge, I learned. By the time I came into the Carnegie Room, I was ready for it. Yeah. So it was a lot of fun as well. So um, how did 1300 Fillmore come about? Because you opened that restaurant um, before you came over to in, to open Black Park Barbecue. Yeah. Um, that came about because while I was at the Carnegie Room, we were approached by a gentleman called Michael Johnson. And Michael Johnson was a developer. and. Um, he had this space here in the Fillmore. There was a space here on, on Fillmore and Eddie that had been open for about 40 years. And um, if you know anything about redevelopment, they came into the Fillmore and basically knocked down places and 
and had these certificates out there that said that people who lived here, and it was predominantly African Americans, that we're going to redevelop this area and uh, we're going to let you back in uh, when it's been developed. So they gave them these certificates to let them back in. Development took a lot longer than was was by design or not be de by design, depends who you talk to. Mm -hmm. So there were areas, if you imagine like that area right where 1300 was, if you lived on that neighborhood in that block, it's 40 years before they did anything with it. If you had a certificate to go back there, in 40 years, most people had passed away. Right. And so you had no chance of going back in there. They wanted the, the neighborhood insisted that that parcel go to people of color. And um, Michael Johnson approached us because he wanted to get it. And he wanted, he approached myself and my wife because uh, we were in the industry. You know, I'd worked in the Carnegie Room, I'd you know, done good things up there, and, you know, 231 Ellsworth and Hilton. And so he was like, we would be a great team to put a restaurant in there. And um, they, all, they knew that what they wanted was a restaurant. They wanted to preserve the jazz heritage of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So they approached Yoshi's as well. Uh, Yoshi's from Oakland and um, asked them if they would want to be a part of the team. Michael Johnson was very smart in that way. So then also he got the uh, locals to back him and, and uh, you know, explain to them who he had on board mm -hmm. and why we were the best for the project. And, um, Everybody got on board with us. We beat out Magic Johnson from LA and the Lakers. We beat out uh, wow. developers from Oakland and from around the country who wanted the, that area. And um, I remember when we were in front of the board of supervisors and it was declared that we were gonna win. There's celebration in the room from the locals and ourselves and everybody for winning that. And yeah. It was a big deal uh, because the city was gonna fund it mm -hmm. and so and it was gonna be held by people of color. Mm -hmm. And um, so it was a big celebration. And we, we moved in. It, that was, we moved in in 2007. Mm -hmm. And we knew four years before that that we were gonna have the space. So yeah. we're looking at 2007, 2003, 2004 that we won that mm -hmm. development. And it took that long to build out. Wow. Yeah, if you go into a neighborhood and you completely decimate the right. housing, and the the uh, jobs and the uh, shops and 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 tell them that you can come back in a few years, mm -hmm. and it takes you ten years, fifteen years, twenty years, thirty, forty years. The, the ramifications are there for everybody to see. Yeah. It just isn't going to come back. And so we went. I remember when I first came here in in '88. I used to be on the peninsula. I'll be coming up here to get my hair cut because mm -hmm. this was the, you know, you couldn't get it. You didn't have an African-American barber in San Mateo. Right. <laughs> and so um, <laughs> at that time, I think we were at 27% African-Americans in, in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And we're now we're, what, 28 years later, we're down to, what, 3%? That sounds about right. Yes. And you live in this neighborhood, right? Yeah. Well, we invested in two restaurants, mm -hmm. um, the condo we live right above it and that was part of the development so you know it became available so I didn't want to travel too much yeah and so I bought it my, me and my wife we bought a condo so we bought it at a time when it was affordable yeah now if I was to try and buy that condo I wouldn't be able to afford it right. you know it's ridiculous what happens in nine years yeah 
it's I still haven't really gotten over the fact that Yoshi's closed down. Um, Nor have we. <laughs> right, right. So what what kind of what was the impact to thirteen hundred film? It was huge. You know, I think initially it was like we dropped like forty percent initially when that closed. Um, year to end, we were at like twenty two percent. Yeah, so that's a big chunk uh, of your clientele. Mm -hmm. People would come and eat at mm -hmm. 1300, and then they'd go and have a sh go to a show. Mm -hmm. And um, myself and my wife had to work really hard to make sure that was that we survived. And um, it's been very, very tough. And we don't have deep pockets. We're just we're a mom and pop mm -hmm. um, organization that has to run like we're uh, you know an international organization with deep pockets. And basically why we survive is we work really hard at what we do and um, we fill in here, there and everywhere and made sure that we survive. Um, we approached the city about our rent and uh, they gave us uh, some rent relief. But you still have vendors out there that you have to pay for and you just have to cut back and um, reorganize and um, take on most of the work yourself. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we're be loved mm -hmm. by people in the neighborhood mm -hmm. and the city, and they know what a struggle it is. So people come in and they support us. So that, for that, we're very grateful. And uh, this is something that we've built up over eight, nine years now that um, you know people want us to survive. They want us to be there. Uh, we opened up 1300 on Fillmore Street, and we opened it up to you know, to be a part of the neighborhood, and we open our doors to the neighborhood. I've, we, my wife is very active in the neighborhood, and she's very active in making the neighborhood better, and improving the neighborhood, and bringing jobs and bringing restaurants and um, you know activity to this side of Fillmore. We've had restaurants like State Bird come in, and been successful. We've had Wise and Sons come in. Um, you know, so we see the improvement, mm -hmm. and uh, we like to think that we were the leaders down here, mm -hmm. and people have followed and uh, been successful. And um, uh, we went from the little train that can to becoming the anchor tenant down this side. Yeah. And um, we we we're invested in this neighborhood. Yeah. We have staff that have were part of our summer projects at um, 1300, who came in and I taught them to cook. Um, for, s for like six week periods during the summer mm -hmm. over there. In fact, I have one girl who I actually fired because <laughs> she was misbehaving. <laughs> and um, they later come and work for us. Yeah. And um, the one young lady in particular came and worked for me when we opened up Black Bark, the barbecue place. And she reminded me that I fired her. <laughs> and I, I did. She said, Yeah, you, I wasn't behaving myself at you. Said I had to go. <laughs> so, did you learn anything? She said, "Yeah, I had to behave myself when I was around you." <laughs> and now she's uh, one of our great employees here. So we—it's we have those kind of stories, and you know, yeah. you, 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 a thirteen hundred has made that kind of impression with people who, yeah. who live in this neighborhood and you know, and grow up in the projects. Right. And so I can relate to that. I grew up in council houses in England, yeah. and it was the projects. Yeah, so why did you decide to open Black Bark Barbecue? Especially, it sounds like you were almost, you know, at a point where it was hard to maintain 1300. Um, so 
pretty brave of you to open up Black Bar Barbecue and well, a whole new venture at that point. Yeah, uh, Black Bar actually was five years in making, and um, uh, Yoshi's was not closing at the time. Right, right. Thirteen hundred <laughs> was very comfortable at the time. Yeah. And I'm walking down the street, and if you walk down Fillmore, there's plaques. There's a plaque across yeah. the road that says. Uh, this is where the Black Panthers were, <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, you know, yeah. or this is, you know, the, the, um, this store or this hotel, and I came across this plaque that said Kansas City Barbecue, which is right outside the barbecue place to the left of it. I looked down, I'm like, oh, it was barbecue here, mm -hmm. and so it just it just set something off in my mind, mm -hmm. and I. At the same time, when I opened up 1300, one of my sous chefs, my first sous chef said to me, are you going to do ribs? I'm like, no, we're not doing ribs here. We're not that kind of restaurant. He goes, I would do ribs. I'm, like, I'm not doing ribs. Anyway, so uh, he worked for me about a year, and he left and went somewhere else. And then he came back and worked with me, and he said, are you doing those ribs? I'm like, no, no, I'm not doing ribs. He's like, you should do some ribs. I'm like, you know what? If I get some ribs in, will you shut up? He goes, yeah. So I got some ribs in. We got the ribs in, and I got a case in. And those things sold so fast. <laughs> it was unbelievable. I looked at him. He looked at me. I said, and I turned around to him and said, wasn't that a good idea of mine? <laughs> he goes, yes, chef. <laughs> so we had the ribs, and we never put them on the menu. Wow. But it was one of those things, that, you know, like at, um, you know, those restaurants that you have a menu. secret menu item. Yeah. So people would come and ask for them. Yeah. Do you have those ribs? And I'm, yeah, we do. And so we went from one case to two case to three cases. And so that was happening at, at 1300. And I see, I see a plaque out here at the same time. I went, oh, might be time for another barbecue place. <laughs> so I went and started investigating barbecue and barbecue in San Francisco. And, you know, and I saw the last barbecue place that was actually on Fillmore was uh, Leon's Barbecue. And uh, I'm like, wow, that was the last one on Fillmore. And Big Nate's used to be here. Uh, there were several barbecue places along here. And um, I'm like, wow, we should bring back barbecue. And the space that we're in uh, for Black Bark was available. So I went over to the landlords over here and said, hey, you know, is that space available? You know, I'd like to do something in it. And they said, well, we have someone who's looking at it. And we're very confident that they're going to take it. I went, OK, great. Be good for the neighborhoods. Right. You know, it's not empty. So I was happy for them. So the barbecue thing was on the back burner. A year went by, nothing happened. I went back to them and said, hey, you guys, you know, you said you had someone in there. Is there anything happening? You know, I have an idea for it. And they said, well, that fell through, but we have someone else in. And they're looking at it. I'm like, great. You know, uh, good for the neighborhood. Went away. A year went by again, nothing happened. I'm like, come on, guys, what's going on? <laughs> you know? Anyway, so I think they were getting some pressure from the city as well because the landlords over here had quite a few places that were available and nothing had to happen. And so um, they were talking to them and said, hey, what's going on? You're not doing anything over there. Shop fronts are closed. And, you know, and I think to get the city off their back, they said, well, we have David and Minetta over at 1300. They want to do something. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally, yeah. So you know, that was two, two and a half years in. And uh, we negotiated with them, and so it was nice. Uh, you know, if you wait a little bit, uh, things will come to you. And um, the negotiations were a lot better than if I had negotiated with them in the first five, yeah. the first uh, year of the negotiation. Yeah. 
I knew the kind of barbecue I wanted to do. Um, if you look at the history of the Fillmore and African-American migration here in, in numbers, it came during World War II because of the shipyards that were here in Oakland, in San Francisco, um, all over. A lot of people came from, from Texas. And so that's kind of was historically what was the neighborhood. And it, it was the kind of barbecue I liked. I didn't like a lot of sauce in my barbecue. Yeah. Um, I liked the dry rub. I liked to taste the meat. Mm -hmm. And I liked to put control how much sauce I put on the meat. Mm -hmm. And so um, it drew me to that kind of barbecue. Mm -hmm. And historically, I thought it made sense for the neighborhood as well, because a lot of the um, you know original, original generation. generation were from the South. Yeah. And so um, it, it just all made sense. And that's how Black Bart became mm -hmm. what it is. Well, the black bark is actually the, the bark of the brisket. If you look at the brisket, um, okay. you want a good bark on it. Yeah. And if, if it's cooking for 12, 13, 14 hours, it becomes black yeah. on the outside. Yeah. And it's a, it's a good black. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great <laughs> not black. Charred, yeah. It's not burnt black. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so um, it, it's, it's, it's one of the things, one of the telltale signs of good brisket. That is nice and black. It's not burnt. Yeah. And uh, huh. and it's nice and crispy. And yeah. the right seasoning on it. Uh, um, burnt ends is something that in, I think in barbecue. It's not even eight o'clock, and I kind of want barbecue already. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, even know. Had I know exactly <laughs> how you feel. And so if you got that um, bark on it, and you, you could, people just ask for the bark sometimes, you know, it's just nice and crispy. Wow. And um, you know, it's uh, it's almost it's like a good caramel on yeah. top of it. Yeah, we opened um, the 12th of January, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I remember the day we opened was like yesterday, and I did, I did what I thought was enough meat to get us through the whole day. We were closed. We were closed. We sold that meat. We were selling that meat in two and a half hours. Wow. We were closed within four hours. Wow. Yeah. The next day, I'm like, they're not gonna sell out of meat this time, and I did four times the amount. Yeah. And we'll sell that in seven hours. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. So. Well, what's been the most challenging thing of having two restaurants now? The challenging thing for me was to let go of 1300. It was my baby. Not let go of it as not go in there. Um, I've set up 1300. It has its reputation after eight years. I hired a young man, Jake, who's the chef over there, and worked with him for you know six months with, uh, to run the place. And, and continue the vision that I have for it, but be able to steer it himself mm -hmm. and um, let him run with it. And you know, with anything, you always think you can do it better, but it's best in the long run to let them do it their way, <laughs> you yeah. know? And um, I had two stipulations, don't take my shrimp and grits off and don't take my fried chicken off. Yeah. <laughs> but you can do everything else you want. <laughs> I, I think 1300 is in good hands. Um, is one of the chefs over there that is um, has the interest of 1300 to heart, mm -hmm. and I couldn't ask for a better person to run that place. So I'm very lucky. So um, it's nice to have yeah. have Chef Jake over there. What's been the most rewarding thing about having come so far and now having two restaurants and having done what you've done over the last decade alone? I I think what's rewarding for for myself and my wife is just to I think in life. 
you have to find something you're passionate about. And uh, if you find that, you will um, enjoy what you do. It doesn't matter about how much money you make and stuff. As long as you make a certain amount, you pay your bills. You've got to pay your bills, you know. It's nice to have a vacation now and then. But if you're passionate about things, and um, you're going to have a good life. You're going to enjoy your life. And we were very lucky. We're passionate about 1300. And we've been able to duplicate that with Black Park. And it's right across the road from each other. And we're able to be in a neighborhood where it's, it's beloved and it's significant and it's helped the revival of a neighborhood. So it's, part of, it's gonna be part of the history, the legacy of this. And so I think that for me personally, that's what I'm most proud of. Well, Chef David, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure to My pleasure too. And that takes us to 25 menu stories. Thank you to all of our guests who've been a part of our journey so far and shared their stories. And thanks to you for being a loyal listener. Stay tuned for more episodes to come from around San Francisco and beyond. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com so you can get all the episodes delivered to your inbox. You can listen on our website, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Special thanks to Siska Marcus, Menu Stories assistant editor and producer, and Patrick Wong, our videographer. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein, and until next time... Happy eating and happy 25 menu stories.